I'm considered a diasporan, as in someone who came from the diaspora and has relocated, there can be this line of division, like us versus them, which is very infuriating for me because Serlunians who have never left Serlun, like born and raised, they have this, not all of course, but they have this perception that diasporans feel like they're either their best. There's this inferiority slash superiority complex. And it comes from both ends, you know, so both ends point fingers at each other. But having worked with both diasporans and day-to-day Serlunians, it's just it's a matter of perception. Some people see diasporans as they feel that like they're superior. They, all they do is speak English. Uh, they refuse to speak Creole, which is not everyone. Hey everyone, welcome back to Flourish in the Foreign, the podcast that elevates and affirms the voices and stories of Black women living and thriving abroad, while also exploring living abroad as a pathway to wellness. Yes, welcome back to the podcast if you're new. Hey, thanks for checking it out. And if you've been here for a while, hey, thanks for sticking around. Appreciate you. I'm your host, Christine Job, a Black American expat currently living in Barcelona, Spain. I am a business strategist that helps Black women and women of color leverage their talents and their skills into viable and sustainable online businesses. Businesses that leave them professionally fulfilled, but also financially abundant so that they can pursue thriving lives abroad. Why? I strongly believe that entrepreneurship is a pathway to self-actualization, and I strongly believe that living abroad really is a pathway to wellness, holistic wellness. We're talking about financial, professional, emotional, mental, physical, all the wellnesses. And so that is what I help Black women and women of color do take their amazingness, put it out to their target market, and use that business as foundation of their financial wellness. And like I said, I am also the host, creator, producer, editor, and everythinger of this here podcast. So Flourish in the Foreign is a labor of love, but labor nonetheless and that is why i ask all of you to please support this here podcast you can support the podcast by becoming a patreon subscriber at www.patreon.com slash flourish foreign on patreon i actually have within our community a lot of really interesting and pertinent articles that come out about living and moving abroad shout out to adrian who just became our latest patreon subscriber appreciate you thank you very much you can also support the podcast by cash apping the podcast yes you can cash app flourish in the foreign at dollar sign flourish foreign cash app is great if you're not really ready to make a monthly commitment you can just tip the podcast If you'd like to contribute to the upgrade of the equipment of this here podcast, there's some things we need, a new podcasting laptop, a new mic. There's a lot of a couple things we need to make this thing go. If you're interested in contributing that way, you can go to the Flourish in the Foreign Amazon wishlist, 
which is at www.flourishintheforeign.com slash support. And you can purchase an item off the Flourish in the Foreign wish list to help upgrade this here podcast. Yes, you can. And I appreciate y'all. Be sure you're following the podcast Flourish in the Foreign on Instagram at Flourish Foreign. Twitter at Flourish Foreign, Facebook at Flourish Foreign. If you haven't checked out the Instagram lives, you are missing out. There's so much great content with past podcast guests on the Instagram lives. For example, the latest Instagram live I did with Amanda Bates of the Black Expat and the Global Chatter podcast. We had such an interesting conversation. We talked about her experience being a third culture kid. We talked about black identity across the diaspora. We talked about the Bali situation with the two American women who are living in Bali. We talked in depth and I think pretty nuanced about that situation. And we talked about dating abroad. We had a really good kiki. It was a really great conversation. Shout out to Amanda. And as I said before, Amanda has not only the amazing platform, The Black Expat, but she also has an amazing podcast called The Global Chatter. And so The Global Chatter takes a deep dive on conversations surrounding international mobility, race, career, and more especially as it relates to Black and Brown people. It is hosted by Amanda Bates, founder of The Black Expat. Come for the commentary, stay for the laughs. The podcast is available wherever you get your podcast. Yes, so check out the Global Chatter podcast. Amanda is wonderful and her podcast is dope. All right, I have given you so many different ways to support this here podcast and to support a fellow Black woman podcaster. So I hope that you have chosen at least one way to support today. All right, on to the next episode. I'm really excited for today's podcast because today's podcast features a woman who has repatriated and sometimes the topic of repatriation comes up across the diaspora about what does that really mean is it do you have to have specific ties to a country do you not have to have specific ties to a country it's a whole conversation now in this episode yasmin of the y square podcast She has roots in Sierra Leone, and she talks about why she decided to repatriate to Sierra Leone and how she has built a fantastic life and business in Sierra Leone. But I'm going to let her tell you all about it. I'm Yasmin Bilkasibrahim. I'm 28, and I'm based in Freetown, Sierra Leone, West Africa. I was born and raised in Normal, Illinois, a small town but a college town uh, where Illinois State University is. I left the States for the first time when I was five to live abroad. I lived in South Africa for four years. And then in 2001, the war ended. My parents are originally from Sierra Leone. So we moved to Sierra Leone at the ending of 2001. So that was my first time. And I lived here from 2001 to 2003. After which I went back to the States and I completed middle school from 2003 to 2006. Then for the second time, I came back to Sierra Leone in 2006 and did a bit of high school till 2009. And then I finally relocated in 2014. So I've been here now for six years. 
So I grew up fortunate to be exposed to travel. My parents are professors, so their job requires them to travel a lot. And my dad's first international posting was in Cape Town. So we lived there for four years. And um, doing like my primary school there, like grade one to grade three, It was great. I lived in post-apartheid society, so it was great. I personally, as a child, I didn't experience any racism or any post-apartheid discrimination, fortunately, but that doesn't uh, represent the true black experiences of black South Africans there. I guess as an expat in that context, I was a bit more shielded from that, having being privileged to go to private school and living in Cape Town, which is predominantly white. So my school, by default, was also predominantly white, and not much minorities attended. But after the war, when I relocated to Sierra Leone for the first time, I had a very negative outlook before going to the country because it's like what we feed into the media. I read about like child soldiers and this war and this warlord. I was like, oh my goodness, am I going to this country? And growing up, I had a taste of West Africa. Like I'd been to Senegal, I'd been to Nigeria because both my parents are half Nigerian. So I knew what life was in West Africa and what Sierra Leone would potentially seem like. But I just, I wasn't sure if this was going to be the place for me. But when I came and I was like, oh, it's not like what's portrayed in the media. That was like my first um, taste of like the the misconceptions and the lies that the media feeds you. I was like, okay, this country is nothing like what I've seen on television. Okay. So when I went back to the States and I came back in 2006, our second president, like post-war, so like in the third republic now of Sierra Leone, things weren't as good just because the reconstruction of the war was still happening. The war had just ended four years ago. Simple things like power and running water was still an issue. And, it, and at, at that point, it's like, oh, I didn't leave the States to come back to Sierra Leone where it seems like it's worse than before. At least when I came back in 2002, 2001, there was power, there was running water, but then it seemed like things had deteriorated. And I was like, oh, I don't don't know how things will be, you know, as time goes on. But moving forward to 2014, when I came back, and still the same issue of water and power and electricity and Wi-Fi, it just seemed that we as a people, like those of us who are either born and raised abroad and came to Sierra Leone, or even if you've never left Sierra Leone, we all have a patriotic duty to contribute to Sierra Leone. So a third culture kid is an individual who was raised in a culture other than their parents or the culture of their country of nationality. And perhaps they've also lived in different environments just during a significant part of their childhood. And so I asked Yasmin if she considered herself a third culture kid. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. There's never been one point in my life that I feel like, not that I I don't belong here, but like, I guess a sense of total inclusion. It's either I, I look different or I have a different point of view that's not conventional to that context or I see things differently. So actually, I think being raised in different countries and also traveling to different countries, you have a different lens to offer. I asked Yasmin to tell me about her university experience, what she studied, and how that experience in university led her back to Sierra Leone. I went into this private um, liberal arts college. I'd always been very scared, <laughs> honestly, to like start that next step because I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. 
in high school, I kind of toyed around the idea with like, oh, psychology or political science. But when I was going to be a sophomore, I was going to declare French and political science. I wanted to try to double major, but that seemed very overwhelming for me. And I was like, well, let me just take a break. Well, it was a very isolating time because that was like, what, almost 10 years ago. And the way mental health is spoken about on social media, it wasn't as normalized back then, just like the natural hair movement. These are things that weren't normalized and I had to go through it myself. Becoming natural at 18, cutting off my permed hair, starting dreadlocks at 19. So mental health was also a, a journey. I feel like I, I don't feel like I had to do it alone. But because of the circumstances I found myself in, I felt I had to do it alone. And that was one of those things. It was very isolating. And I wish, of course, looking back in, I wish I would have been more open and spoken about it, but I didn't. So that made it a bit more difficult. But honestly, the journey overall coming back home to not only breathe air into something that you know I, I thought was long dead and I was just very tired mentally and emotionally from the States, it was very rewarding. My parents were in Sierra Leone. They had proposed it because they knew the state of my mental health and emotional health. They actually proposed the six months. So I just took them up on that offer. So after I came back to Sierra Leone, so I, just, I ended up finishing university here. So I just decided to major in French. I took some electives in political science, but I didn't minor in it or anything. I ended up getting a certificate in a complete different subject, global health, because I started working in mental health and sexual reproductive health rights. I was like, okay, it would be great if I have a global health certificate. So I got that at the medical school here. But I ended up majoring in French and because I was always been I was always been good at it and since at that time I didn't know what it is I wanted to do at the time I was thinking of like being a translator for the UN that's all you want but then when you read into global politics and international relations and found out the UN was practically evil <laughs> I was like okay let me find something else I, I do teach and that's one way that's one of my um streams of revenue is uh, through teaching and translating but I ended up deciding to do French because I liked it and I'm in the process of getting my master's in public health. So I, I think that when you do something very broad, it allows you to focus on other subjects and do other things. Like, not that French wasn't intensive, learning a whole language is, but because I already had 10 years of experience, it wasn't so much as a challenge. So I was able to work, I was able to grow my business, I was able to travel for work. So it was very flexible. So I'm glad I ended up choosing French at the end of the day, despite my family's objections. Like, oh, what are you going to do with French? You know, it's not, a, it's not a profitable subject, this, this, and that. But I actually travel sometimes to be a translator. Yasmin is an entrepreneur, and so I asked her to tell me more about her businesses and more about her nonprofits, and what were the impetus for creating these entities? So during Ebola, 14,000 girls became pregnant, teenage girls. And we already had a teenage pregnancy issue in Sierra We have a whole national secretariat devoted to teenage pregnancy and HIV AIDS in Sierra So this obviously would put us back as a, as a developing nation. So in response to that, I founded Girl Up, which is a UN foundation campaign that started in the States in 2010. And they aim to promote the health, safety, education, leadership of adolescent girls. But it's quite global. There's over like 60 uh, countries that do it. And Sierra Leone became the 63rd in 2016. So 
At Girl Up, we focus on adolescent mental health, so basically digital rights, so girls are educated about online harassment, cyberbullying, etc. Just knowing their rights online and how it translates from offline to the digital world. Sexual and gender-based violence because harmful traditional practices such as female genital mutilation, FGM, and forced and early marriage are still quite an issue in Sierra Leone in addition to sexual reproductive health rights and menstrual hygiene. So that was my response to Ebola. And working with these girls, honestly, they also have become a huge, they've not only had a huge impact on me as much as I've had a huge impact on them in terms of exposure and mentoring and stuff like that, but they've also contributed to my, my journey as a human being because a lot of issues that I was sheltered from, I, I, I could see it, you know, I, I worked with these girls who have either been victims of domestic abuse or female genital mutilation, survivors of different harmful traditional practices. So it made me a more empathetic person to know that there are other people who have real issues, you know, as opposed to what I didn't, in comparison, I didn't deem as, as significant. So working with them and understanding the key issues and the root causes of patriarchy in a developing country, in Africa, was very important to me and very um, integral for my feminist journey. I produce Shea Butter products and stuff like that. The Shea Butter business, that's a social business that was born in a response to keep the nonprofit sustainable. So I registered Girl Up as a community-based organization. So our team, no one is paid, including myself, kind of like not get into that rut of like, okay, well, we can't do anything if we don't have money. No, I don't want that to be an issue. The girls should always get the information, no matter what. So that's where Ori came into place. Like Ori, the profits from Ori, it goes to run the girl club. As I mentioned, I majored in French and because I didn't have a huge overwhelming course load and there are only four people in my graduating class our professors were very lenient so I was able to have a full-time job while I was in university so during that time I was teaching at different NGOs and offices teaching them French teaching their staff Creole Creole is the lingua franca in Sierra Leone so throughout my tutoring and which I was also doing during Ebola I was like oh I might as well just register this as a business and it, it came to a point that my tutoring I was out earning my salary by uh, a lot. So I was like, well, I might as well not um, teach at the school anymore. So I resigned and went to do business and consulting full time. I never looked back. It's very flexible just because Sierra Leone's economy, like the, the Leone, our local currency, it depreciates very quickly towards the dollar. It's a very volatile economy. So one thing that's helped is that having international clients where you can charge in a foreign currency. So no matter what the exchange rate is, I'm, I'm not losing money. And the flexibility that it awards me was very fulfilling. I could meet clients online. I don't necessarily have to go physically and you also have more time for yourself and to be more creative. So I think being being an entrepreneur under 30 in West Africa, it's it's worthwhile. It's not easy, of course. There are unpleasant situations wherein you're guaranteed a contract and then you're kind of snaked out of it or some people are not very forthcoming, but that doesn't taint the seven other million people who have opened doors for me, who have been very kind, who want to work with young people. Because we live in a society, not only is it patriarchal, but like 
African society is very ageist. So even though, yes, I'm young, I, I have a degree, whatever, whatever, it's all about like, oh, well, you're like 20 years younger. And most of my clients in the case, they're always like 20 or 15 years my senior. I don't feel inferior to that, but the average Sierra Leone, you know, the average African, ageism is a very big factor. So sometimes young people such as myself, we are, we're sidelined. And only when it comes to something that will give them clout, like, oh, do you have a young person on your team? Like this whole diversity factor in quotes. Like if you have a woman, you know, or you have a person of color in the Western world, that's what's seen as diverse. In Africa, what's seen as diverse is if you have a young person on your team. So I always ask them like if, so that's kind of like my diversity factor question that I ask. I'm like, how many young people are on your team? If I'm the only one by default, I don't take it. So that's kind of how I try to, create space for other people on the table make sure that they're also under 30 and make sure that they're women as well so those are kind of like the challenges um but also opportunities as an entrepreneur you kind of find the opportunities and challenges to to further your agenda so that's kind of like how it is business-wise and entrepreneur-wise as a young person in Sierra Leone because Yasmin is an entrepreneur I asked her, what were the logistics of starting a business in Sierra Leone? Registering a business, it's gotten much easier. So you can fill out all the paperwork online on the website, whether it's a partnership, whether it's a sole proprietorship, whether it's a social business, there's every single category on their website. But because we still live in a quite manual system, you'd have to print it out and then you go to the office and it collects the respective signatures, which is usually like four or five or six signatures. But at least you can you can initiate the process online so it's not very cumbersome. And then you pay at the bank and within usually on the day you get it. But worst case scenario, one to three business days, you get your certificate and you're fine. And it's already registered with the, the National Revenue Authority. So in terms of like your, you just keep your books in check and whatever you owe the government, depending on your bracket, then, you know, you pay them based on that. So that's OK. In terms of young diasporans or even non-Serdians who want to come and do business with Serdians, it's always good to have someone on the ground because some people... They may not be able to live here, but they want to be in whatever country that they live in. And that's fine. Have a good, solid business partner, someone that you trust. And trust is something that you have to build, of course. But as someone who's familiar with the landscape, the, the economic and the entrepreneurial ecosystem that you can work with. So that could make business easier, especially if you have a partner abroad. Sending money through direct deposits is easier rather than sending it through money channels that you lose a lot of money like Western Union or MoneyGram. So that helps a lot in that respect. I feel like Sierra Leone is a country that almost anything can thrive if you find your niche, especially with the, if your niche is like something that a lot of Sierra Leoneans may not be interested in, it's something that's like the one percenters, that's fine. But as long as you can find sustainable revenue coming in from those one percenters. So it just depends on how you target it and who you target it to. One social media platform that works probably in Nigeria, it may not be as successful here. Like as a person, I'm not much of a Facebook person. Like millennials don't even use Facebook anymore. But as a business person, as an entrepreneur, I have to use Facebook because that's where the majority of my clients come in for my consultancy business. That's where a lot of people see products, so they always are messaging the Ori page. So Facebook is what works for advertising. Instagram, it's emerging, but not as much. And Twitter, 
not so much. So you need to know what works in your market. So that's one thing that I would advise diasporans who want to start a business. Just don't come with this idea. Come and do your market research, at least for six months. Find out what you want. How are you going to make this work, especially with the depreciating Leones against the U.S. dollar? These are pertinent things you need to know, and especially associations you can join, like the Chamber of Commerce. If it's a local product like Ori, we join the local content agency. Things like that you need to know the agencies that are in your corner, so that that can also help to amplify your business. So I asked Yasmin if the politics of Sierra Leone ever affect her day to day life. And she actually gave a really good story about when we first virtually met, we were supposed to have an appointment. And if I'm remembering correctly, we had to reschedule due to some political unrest that was happening in Freetown at the time. Every now and then, there's always political fights and and brawls like the day Yasmin and I were supposed to have our interview with you like, oh, sorry, there, you know, there's a shooting in town. That happens more often than I care to admit. <laughs> so that day it was a there was a political party prisoner that was held at the the state penitentiary, and whether or not there was a breakout for him to come out, it's not quite sure because apparently he was transferred to a different institution. But things like that happen. So like right now, there's a lot of tension between the two. We have a bipartisan system just like in the United States, and um, there's a lot of tension between the two parties. So. Not so much in Freetown, the violence happens. It's a lot in the provinces because that's where the strong party holders are. Another one of our, this is a systemic issue in Africa, but in Sierra Leone to be particular is tribalism and regionalism. As a Pan-Africanist, I don't identify on a ethnic basis. I just identify on a national basis. I'm a Sierra Leonean, I'm an African, I'm Pan-African. But a lot of people, again, because of society, there are ethnicities that are deemed in a higher social rank. So a lot of the minority ethnicities, they identify as one of the larger ones because there's more power. And a lot of this power equates to political power. So a lot of them, they may not necessarily belong to that ethnicity. They may have married into it or because it's a very big village or community, they end up speaking the language. It's like Creole. Creole is uh, the lingua franca of Sierra Leone, but it's influential because the Creoles, the liberated Africans who came to Sierra Leone, in the 1700s, they formed that language when they came to Freetown and founded Freetown. So the Creoles, they, they're the ones who have the English sounding names. They're the ones who were captivated by the British. So they're the ones who had the white collar jobs. They're the ones who are the most influential and they're not indigenous. So they have that kind of power. So it's this, that, that's one reason why Creole is widely spoken in Sierra Leone. And with regionalism, the people who belong to the northern part of Sierra Leone, predominantly they belong to one political party, and those in the south belong to the other. So the 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 politics that plays that's one that's uh, that's where a lot of the violence and disruption happens. It's in the it's in the provinces because that's where these strong political parties are. That's where the traditional harmful practices usually take place, and they resonate with their sponsors here in Freetown, in the capital. So a lot of our political issues, they they stem from that. They stem from disagreements or fights that happen there. But in terms of how it affects me as a person, I would say more so with business, the taxes are quite high, especially for importation. 
but there is an agreement, a West African agreement that now has um, been enacted that reduces that, especially for small business um, people, small and medium enterprises. So that's one thing that will help. I think at an ECOWAS level, which is the economic community of West African states, we're about 15 in West Africa, that helps a lot. But at the local government um, level, not so much because of like the tax imposition, how high the taxes are. I was curious to know how Sierra Leone had managed COVID-19. And just for full disclosure, when I spoke with Yasmin, it was in the summertime. So things possibly could have changed. But these were her thoughts on the COVID response in Sierra Leone. When COVID first came to Africa, I think the first African country was Egypt and then South Africa. Sierra Leone was quite proactive. This is because we're still traumatized from Ebola. So we closed our borders immediately, our airspace, everything. But unfortunately, on one of the last flights in March... The case that we got was an imported case from Belgium, a Union, who went from eating in Belgium and then came back and contracted COVID. So then I think a few doctors as well had treated it and it started to spread in the community as well. Not very widespread because people became very vigilant. Serlion is a very word of mouth culture because we have a very high uh, illiteracy rate. So it was mostly a lot, a lot of community mobilizers, people at the local government level, like the chiefs, the head of villages they would be informed like yo there's this new disease that's here it's nothing like ebola this isn't that this is how you can warn your people because by default village people are vigilantes they know if you belong to their village or not so those who are by borders of because we border guinea and liberia it's not hard for them to detect oh this person is not from here so because our borders are very porous there were people who were like elected to be kind of like guards of the country like okay we can't deploy the entire military we don't have those resources but we're counting on you you know you as a serenunian if you see this person report them to the nearest police station to the nearest you know patrol officer or whatever so it was more of like having people to be aware because a lot of people even up till now they deny the existence of covid and it's just not a serenunian issue it's a global issue so but because something like ebola happened to us not too long ago about five years ago people were more readily accepted or more able to accept the existence of covid but again there are some naysayers so in that approach i commend the government for being proactive of course there have been things along the line the past five months they could have done better as in the funds that were allocated, the testing, we could have done more testing. We could have used the, the funding more appropriately to fund treatment centers and isolation centers. There were many, many complaints of um, COVID patients, both symptomatic and asymptomatic, that they're not getting X, Y, and Z. So things like, like logistical issues, basically, and poor management, that is our issue at a, as a whole in Sierra Leone. So that's one thing that they could have done. But the measures that they put in place and the contact tracing, the primary and the secondary contact tracing, apparently we were like one of the the top nations in the world to have handled that. So in that respect, I'm very happy and I was very proud to be a Sierra Leone knowing that as a, in the world, we're one of the, the few countries that were very good at the contact tracing. So that's one thing that, that's another thing that I also commend the government for. And the sensitization, radio is very popular here, again, because of power issues and people live in remote, remote 
parts of this country, not everyone has access to electricity. So not as a by default, not everyone has access to a smartphone or a television. But every single household, according to a UN study a few years ago, has a radio or has access to a radio. So the radio has been phenomenal in getting the word out and interpreting these messages in all the local languages. So that response has been great. As a person with Girl Up, because our programming means that we have to meet in person, we had to obviously adapt it to fit a COVID setting. So we would mostly do like mental health check-ins and well-being check-ins like every week on our WhatsApp group. We'll meet because we just, we typically meet once a week, but then we would meet like once a month. And for the executive, I'll meet with them twice a month. So we can continue our programming, especially for the next quarter. So that was one thing. We just had to kind of adapt our programming to fit a COVID context. Hey everyone, I hope you're enjoying this episode of Flourish in the Foreign. And if you are, please be sure to take a screenshot tag Flourish Foreign and share it across your social media networks. It's really important to share these stories. Since you are enjoying this episode, be sure to support this podcast by becoming a Patreon supporter at www.patreon.com slash Flourish Foreign, tipping the podcast via cash app at dollar sign Flourish Foreign, or purchasing an item off of the podcast Amazon Wishlist, which you can find at www.flourishintheforeign.com slash support. All right, on to the rest of the show. Of course, I had to ask her, because y'all ask me, how is dating in Sierra Leone? It's so funny because we just released an episode on Thursday called Dating in, in Salon. Salon is just the Creole word that we refer to as Sierra Leone. So yes, in Salon, dating is a struggle for millennials, honestly, because it comes back to the mentality. I'm a feminist and I'm unapologetically fe- feminist. So a lot of men, even the ones who you think in quotes are young, exposed and cultured, it intimidates them. The fact that I'm independent, I get my own money, I'm not reliant on anyone. As someone who is young, she has her own car, she has her own business, I'm seen as intimidated by default. So a lot of men are like, oh, well then what do you want me to do for you if you're doing everything for yourself? I'm just like, e? then step up. Like, it's not that hard. But like for us, I think my role personally was just like, people who are forthcoming, like in Serlum, cheating is very normalized. It's sad to say especially a country that like has a very dichotomized view of religion it's either you're christian or you're muslim but yeah but cheating is very very normalized and so we have this expression that's called we all not meet which means that we're all we're all peers we're all dating each other so like you will find out you're dating x x is dating y and y and z are together so one thing just like what will smith and jada and august are going through i kid you not there are a lot of entanglements in alone there are a lot of entanglements so you just have to be careful who you're getting involved with because some married men are just so overt and cheeky like you'd be like oh are you married and with their ring on their finger they're like yeah and i'm like "Uh uh-uh so and if you date someone who you know is not married but then it's always like a story like are you single 
well so so and so it's like it's not well so so and so like it's either yes or no because I'm, I'm just a very straightforward person and i don't mind shooting my shot i never used to shoot my shot before like i was always that kind of person like oh no you know the man has to come to me but i was like no if i'm a feminist like i need to own my identity i need to also like shoot my shot and i'm glad i started shooting my shot because psh, you, you just you know you just kind of cut to the chase you don't have to worry about all of that so dating is solo it has been a struggle i've been here for six years it has been a struggle and i can only say like recently i've been able to find like someone that has like a partner qualities so that to say it it is not for the faint-hearted you have to be very patient if you actually want to find someone here especially if that's important because maybe you want someone who wants to stay in salon or stay in africa because that's usually the issue if you find someone like you that's been born and raised abroad and maybe they come to Sierra Leone holidays like oh no Sierra Leone is not as developed as I want it to be I don't want to live here so we don't have the same beliefs I want I don't always want to live in Sierra Leone but I always want to live in Africa so for me that's an issue if you want to stay in the west because I you know I've left the west six years ago so it's just kind of being patient and and yeah just going through one toad at a time <laughs> that that's dating in a nutshell in salon for millennials i asked yasmin to discuss if she has experienced any discrimination while living in sierra leone and since she is on the continent is there racism or colorism in sierra leone my co-host and the podcast that i run uh white square pod we actually talked about this in our episode a few weeks ago called racism and discrimination in sierra leone so in africa in general we don't have a race problem and i say this at because racism is a systemic issue it's institutionalized we do not have that of course in south africa that is a different issue because they had apartheid but in sub-saharan africa as a whole institutional racism is not our issue it's colorism and discrimination africa i wouldn't say it's a caste system per se but there is a social hierarchy so in terms of like if you're in certain i'm considered one of the elite i'm considered the one percent in the states i would say i'm middle class but in, in Sirloin, I'm aware of that privilege that I have. So I'm considered 1%. So you're viewed in a different light than the the day-to-day Sirloin. So that's one. Because I'm considered a diasporan, as in someone who came from the diaspora and has relocated, or there's, there can be this line of division, like us versus them, which is very infuriating for me because Sirloinians who have never left Sirloin, like, born and raised they have this not all of course but they have this perception that diasporans feel like they're either their best there's this inferiority slash superiority complex and it comes from both ends you know so both ends point fingers at each other but having worked with both diasporans and day-to-day serenians it's just it's a matter of perception some people see diasporans as they feel that they're superior they, all they do is speak english uh, they refuse to speak creole which is not everyone but some Australians don't seem to understand that many diasporans, like myself, I didn't know Creole. I always understood Creole because my parents converse. So my parents, they speak Creole fluently and other African languages, but they spoke to my sister and I in English at home. So when they converse to one another, we always grew up understanding Creole, so we weren't completely in the dark. And that's the case for a lot of diasporan kids. So when they return or when they come to Australia for the first time, the one thing we always ask is speak Creole to us because we... We can't learn the language. We can't learn the grammatical structure if you don't speak it to us. So I, I was very unsuccessful my first time because no one spoke Creole to me. But when I came back the second time for high school, 
and I had high school Serenian friends, then I learned Creole. So I was successful in learning Creole. So, and then I decided to learn the, the actual structure. Because at my school, I went to a private school again. So they didn't teach Creole. They teach international languages like Arabic and French. So I learned French. But at government assistance schools in Suriname, they teach you Creole in secondary school. So they know how to write it and read it. And, that's, and I wanted to be literate in Creole. I didn't want to be a, a Creole speaker in just, in just oral. So... There is that divide in terms of class. There is. Sierra Leone is, uh, in most African societies, is very classist society. So that's something that's very commonly found in West Africa, and colorism as well. But colorism is something that was inherent, it's, it's an inherent byproduct of colonialism. That's not something that we, per se, are in control of, as it's one of those things that have trickled down from colonialism. But it is something that we perpetuate. You can hear in everyday conversation, oh, you're, you're, you're too dark, you're too this, you're too that. But if you have money, that supersedes things like color. So for us in certain, it's more of a classist issue that we have, and in Africa as a, as a whole, as opposed to institutionalized and systemic racism or discrimination based on the color of your skin. I was curious to know what the cost of living was in Sierra Leone, in particular in Freetown. I would say because Sierra Leone is not a country that gets flights internationally every single day, like we have flights daily but we don't we don't tend to have direct flights from Europe or the United States you always have to go to a different country briefly and then come to Sierra Leone so we got like six flights a day for lucky six to eight flights and because the Leone depreciates against the dollar a lot at least in the past 10 years it's been depreciating a lot if you come with foreign currency pounds euros US dollars you benefit so but a lot of things it seems like money goes really quickly as well so you just kind of have to pace yourself things are definitely relatively cheaper than of course um the states and depending on what you're getting i would say the value also depends like if you're getting jewelry or if you're buying drinks or you're going partying it depends some things i would say they're not worth it like things you can find in the west no for sure they're definitely inflated here but things that are locally found, locally made, they're definitely worth it. That's things that you would invest in, probably things that you would prefer anyways. So I'd say in that regard, um, apart from ticket prices, it depends on that person's lifestyle. But the in Freetown, I would say it's the most expensive because it's the capital and it's a very centralized country. So everything is here um, in the capital. But if you live in the provinces or you work in the provinces, it's it's very cheap. It's If only there was internet, honestly, I wouldn't. I, I don't consider myself a city girl. I mostly live in the suburbs of cities or um, lives in smaller towns. I would love to live in, like in the village if I had like great access to internet and electricity and water. Electricity, not so much. I mean, as long as there's like electricity a day or every other day, I could live with that per se because we have power banks and we have solar devices now. So that's great to charge your laptop and your phone. But, and the city things can be expensive, like real estate. Real estate is very expensive. You can find the bargains here and there, but it's quite a hunt. So I'd say, depending on um, that person's lifestyle, you, you could have a, a good vacation and not break the bank, not like going to Spain or going to Nigeria or Ghana. It'll, because 
those countries are relatively more expensive than Sierra Leone. So it would be definitely worth your while, especially since we have a lot of natural beauty and resources in Sierra Leone. So I would say it depends on that person's budget and how that person lives. But generally speaking, it's not as expensive as it would be in the West. And it's not as expensive as other emerging economies in West Africa. I asked Yasmin to provide some advice for those of you who are considering repatriating or returning to the continent. And this is what she had to say. I would say you have to dip your toes in the water. If you're seriously considering coming home, work towards that goal proactively. And when I say that, I mean financially, because um, you don't know if you might find a job or maybe your business is not taking off as you want it to. Nothing's going to start immediately. Come with at least six months worth of finances to sustain you while you try to figure things out. That will give you enough time to know what can you live here. Do you understand the culture of business, the entrepreneurial um, culture, or the job market? Is the job market something that's working for you? Because certain, obviously the standard of living is lower than in the Western world, that would also affect how much you'd be earning. So unless you're getting a development or private sector job that will pay you what will probably match what you're getting in the West, more than likely you might be taking a pay cut. So think about that as well. But also think about maybe that pay cut is better in comparison to like you know the mental health that you won't be able to get in that country that you're in the West. So... You can't just say, okay, I'm going to go because you know, I'm tired. No, 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 no. You have to plan. So one thing I would say, whatever country it is you're trying to go to in Africa and the global south in general, you need to research that country and at least spend three to six months there. I would advise six, but I know everyone's situation is different. At least three to six months to understand the culture and the people and who you'll be working with. And if that's something that aligns with your goals and your beliefs, then start working towards relocating. But you have to at least stay here for some time to be a better judge of character. As I mentioned previously, Yasmin is a co-host of the Y Squared podcast. And so I asked her to talk more about the podcast and what it's all about. So Y Squared Pod is Yasmin and another Yasmin and I. We found each other on Twitter the beauty of social media so we found each other on this thread that was talking about like black creators and um bloggers so i saw her i was like oh her name is yasmin it's like oh she's also from sierra leone so we started messaging we met march 2018 and then we met in october and 2018 i went to the uk and we met in london and she was like yeah i would love to host a podcast with you i was like oh that sounds great and I was like, when are you coming? Like, how would we do this? You know, I'm based in Sirio and I have no plans to relocate, let alone to the UK. And she's like, oh, don't worry about it. You know, we'll figure it out. So I thought, okay, maybe she has one of these sophisticated apps or something that we could do this. So she's like, oh, I'm coming to Sierra Leone. I'm moving. I was like, no, you're not. So she just came December 2018 and she's been here. I was like, oh, you're serious. So that's basically how we met. And we started doing the structure for Y Square Pod. So basically it, it first started off as we have three seasons and the rest of the episodes they're not um in seasons they just go by episode 22 episode 23 so each season originally had seven um episodes so we had 21 episodes that were in three seasons and the rest are independent episodes the first season i would say was about our journey our collective journey coming to Sierra Leone, me being here for six years, her at the time only in Sierra Leone for like three months, and why we chose to come back and living and working in Sierra Leone as entrepreneurs, as digital content creators, which is a very niche market in Sierra Leone, how do we make it work? 
So that was basically the premise of our podcast. But then as we expanded and we got more traction and we got featured in a lot of media, both locally and internationally, we decided to make it a more collective journey. It started with us, but now it's with everyone who wants to be a part of the journey. So we started inviting people onto our podcast and that's what it's become. Basically, we we have a, a topic and it could be around culture, entrepreneurship, living in Africa. It's quite diverse. We try to be very open and I wouldn't say appeal to all walks of life, but anyone who's open-minded, anyone who has a gender lens, anyone who has a anyone who's socially conscious, that's it. So that's I would say is our target audience. According to our analytics, we reach people from 18 to age 60. So judging by that, it's a very wide gap and I would say people who are more socially conscious, you know, very progressive people who want to just know and learn from others. So when it's not just the two of us talking, we have guests come in. We recently started the segment Why Script Pod and Friends. So uh we our friends came on and we talked about the dating culture episode and we'll have like a guest that will come in from who's an expert in his or her field and he or she discusses it. So that's pretty much the premise of uh Why Script Pod. But we've evolved from a podcast to the POD and pod now stands for producing, organizing and developing. So we we do content strategy for um small and medium enterprises. We do hosting workshops. Every year we train adolescent girls in content creation and blogging. So that's one thing that we do. We also facilitate and advertise on the podcast. I asked Yasmin to describe to me her definition of wellness and how had moving back to Sierra Leone really influenced and transformed her concepts and her practice of wellness. I'll say wellness is acceptance. being at peace like going to bed and not worrying about oh my goodness do i have to do this or i need to do that this is how i'm viewed in society i think it's just going to sleep without those kind of thoughts of course we live in a very high paced society and world in general where you have to hit deadlines you have things to do you have bills to pay and that's great but i would say wellness is when you're at peace with yourself when you're by yourself and you're you're not thinking of anything else you don't feel isolated you feel at ease the new wellness comes in the, in the form of meditation that's something i started i was i've been practicing up and on for four years but i also journal i got back into journaling a few months ago so i think so it's something that is an activity for you and yourself and you're at ease you play music or you get a massage or you light some incense whatever that means to you that is your time to decompress from the world you're not a worker or an employee or a boss or you're just a person just a human being before any of these other added titles you're not a partner you're not anything you're just yourself so i would say it's very important especially since the social expectations of black people to of black women to perform are ridiculously high and impossible and just downright demeaning in some cases you're a human being before you're any of these labels So wellness for me is when you get to that you, you get that time of the day whether it's 30 minutes or 1 hour and you can get to be alone and you feel peace. So I think that's very important to practice not just for your business ethics or your professional ethics or what not but just as a day-to-day person so that you don't have that mental breakdown, you don't feel overwhelmed and 
you know that you're loved and you're human first before anything else. Thank you so much, Yasmin. If you are interested in keeping up with Yasmin, you can via social media. So you can find me at Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, at Mina, M-I-N-A, Bilkis, B-I-L-K-I-S. My website is minabilkis.com. For Ori Shea Butter, if you want to support the girls, and if you like Shea Butter, of course, we are found on Instagram at Ori from Sierra Leone, O-R-I from Sierra Leone, and our website as well, orifromsierraleone.com. And the girls that we support, if you want to support the girls in our programming, it's girlupsl.org and girlupsl on all our platforms, Facebook, Twitter. All right. Thank you all so much for tuning into this week's episode. I appreciate you so, so much. If you've enjoyed this episode, be sure to become a Patreon of this podcast. Support this Black Woman podcast. And you can do so at www.patreon.com slash flourish foreign. You can cash at this Black Woman podcast at dollar sign flourish foreign. And of course, you can contribute to the upgrade of our production equipment by purchasing an item off our Amazon wish list at www.flourishintheforeign.com slash support. Also, be sure to be following the podcast across all social media channels. Yes, please, please do that. Instagram at Flourish Foreign, Facebook at Flourish Foreign, Twitter at Flourish Foreign, and YouTube. I will be dropping more videos this week on YouTube, so definitely, definitely check that out. Also, I just wanted to let y'all know that I appreciate your support and I appreciate your feedback. And so I have a survey that I would love for you to just fill out and give me your thoughts on the podcast. And in exchange, I will enter you into a random drawing for a clubhouse invite. This time I have four, four clubhouse invites. So if you want to get in, let me know, fill out the survey and enter to win. And I'll be making the drawing this Saturday. So make it happen. All right. As always, thanks to Zachary Higgs, who produced the music of this here podcast. I appreciate you, sir. If you're interested in getting some music for your podcast or for your next project, hit him up. His information is in the show notes. All right, that's it for this week. Go abroad and cultivate a life well lived. See you next week. On the next episode of Flourish in the Foreign. But it's interesting because like the growth that I've had in this year is unlike anything that I've had in terms of like my growth as an artist and as a designer. Like. Almost all of my art projects this semester were about blackness or black womanhood or black culture. These things that I had tried to make paintings about in the U.S. But it wasn't received the same because of the environment. Here, it's completely different where people seem to be more open to learning and understanding and empathizing with the kind of statements that I'm making with my art.